Are you passionate about making a difference through design? Join us at the Human Centered Design Network's Circle, a new private community for change makers just like you. Connect with like minded professionals, gain exclusive rights to monthly learning opportunities, and lead the change in human centered design. For more information, see thisishcd.com. Now, let's get back into that episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of This Is HCD. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a service design principal now based in Dublin, Ireland. Recently, I caught up with Sarah Richards in London. Sarah's founder of Content Design London, an organisation focused on delivering content design training courses, as well as working with organisations to help build the content design function internally. Sarah previously held the role of Head of Content Design within the GDS, the Government Digital Services Team for the Gov.uk. And in this conversation, we actually go back in time to discuss what that was like, working with people who had no idea what content design was and how Sarah worked around that. Also joining in in this conversation was Yaris Beats, the International Service Design Director for EY Saren in London. Now, as a disclaimer, myself and Yaris actually worked together but was really interested to bring in a different voice to the conversation about content design and how this sits within the service design world and how the obvious role of content design enables people to better find, better understand and better use services. So let's jump straight in. Sarah Richards, a very warm welcome to the This Is HCD podcast. Hello, thank you. So here we're, we're coming from London. So we're also here joined by Yaris Beats, who's the International Service Design Director for EY Seren. Yaris, delighted to be here. Hi there. So today we're, um, we're going to chat to Sarah about content design. So Sarah, tell us a, a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today, not in terms of like the tube, but also uh, you know, in your career, how you managed to be here as a content designer and an author as well of content design. I mostly fell into most of my career. So I actually started as a designer. I had a batik printed dungarees and a half shaved head and coloured hair and I was all terribly trendy. And then at some point I found out that copywriters earned more money. So I switched disciplines (laughs) in an entirely mercenary way, uh, became a copywriter and I was working for Ogilvy's and I was far too pedantic. So they put me in quality assurance away from the creative people and more towards the editorial staff. So then I retrained as an editor, went digital, carried on in that for a while and then ended up head of content design at the Government Digital Service. Right. When were you at the GDS? At the end of the beta, which was kind of 2010-ish to 2014. Okay, great. We're just going to go over to Yaris. Yaris, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you managed to get into design and where you are here today. So I'm a product designer um, by background. Uh, I'm from from Holland, from the Netherlands. You might hear from my <laughs> accent. I uh, product design, industrial design, and um, I've ended up in service design because I was attracted to the more connected products and the products that had a, a kind of a, a more complex uh, ecosystem around it. So automatically, kind of drifted towards service design. And about six years ago, almost seven. I joined uh, Seren, uh, which now is EY Seren, part of uh, Ernst Young, kind of a, you know the the big the big organisation. But we're still very much our own design agency here in London. And uh, yes, I'm I head of service design here for a while, and now I head up service design internationally across the across the various offices. And uh, very interested in in uh, content design and and what we're talking about today. 
Great. So let's kick off. Sarah, tell us a little bit about content design. In the lead up to this, we were, we were having a little bit of a chat and I didn't realize that you coined the phrase content design. So I'm very honored to have the content <laughs> design queen That's sitting right. up to me. I'm yeah. a queen. Uh, Sarah means princess in ancient Hebrew, you know. Princess design. There you go. I am princess of content design. Um, I've been apologizing to designers around the world. Yeah, an- another term another term, up. another term that people are going to like. Right, we've got UX design and now we've got yeah. content design. So, what is content design? It's a way of giving the audience what they need at a time they need it on a channel that they're on and in a way that they expect, using the language that the users use. So, the backstory was when we were in government at the time. At the beginning of the beta of GovUK, everybody's function was in their job title, right? So a writer wrote and a sub-editor sub-edited and then a publisher published. And then it was kind of okay because everybody knew what everybody else was doing because it was in their title. And then this project came along, GDS, and suddenly we had designers sitting right next to us. We had developers sitting right next to us. We had researchers. We could. It wasn't just about words. And we, as a, as a community across government, we were fed up with being tied into, you can correct the grammar, you can correct our punctuation, but you have little or no say in anything else to do with our editorial yeah. in, in digital because the policyholders or the legal people or the, you know, the content owners had complete control of that. And one of the most important questions a content designer can ask is, what's the point of this? Why are we publishing this at all? And we weren't, we just weren't even being allowed to do that sort of thing. So when Tom Lusmore, who's the director, director of the GDS, he came up and he said, okay, what's editorial? What do you mm. want? He just gave me a blank sheet. I was like, right then. So this is, had the GDS actually kicked off at this point? It was, you were in part of a, a new initiative that, was it Francis Moore? Maud, Francis Maud, Fra- yeah. Francis Maud, um, was the the kingpin, wasn't it, for the initiation to kick off in government? Was, am yeah, I right? He was, yeah, he was the MP that kicked it off in government. He commissioned a report by Martha Lane Fox in 2010, and she it's on Gov UK now. You can read it. It's called Revolution or Evolution because it's saying that all government services yeah. should just be scrapped. Yeah, just start I, again. I remember reading that. But for people, like we, we've got a large listenership in America and in Australia. What is Gov UK? GovUK is a single website holding all government information. So previously, when I was working in government, there was a site called DirectGov. And at that time, there were three and a half thousand government websites, most of them with their own teams. Only three and a half thousand? Just the three and a half thousand. Hardly anything. (laughs) There was one called Beefy and Lammy, which was about how to cook beef and lamb. Right. Be popular in New Zealand. (laughs) Because government needs to tell you how to cook. So anyway... Yeah, so there were a lot, and GovUK pulled in all of them. If it's government information, it's on GovUK. So what kind of things were you doing back then as it was kicking off? And tactically, how were you uh, working with the old school workers who were were kind of like on the fringes of this GDS piece? Because I'm just thinking of people who are listening or in organisations, and I imagine if you did create your own internal GDS system, what would that look like? What did it look like in the early days of the GDS being implemented? There was only, I think it was 24 of us in total. So there were developers, designers, there was delivery managers as us. There were eight content people to start off with. And then you had the product owner. Some of the developers were also tech arcs. 
because we What's need tech uh, technical architects so they could run around and understand what the government legacy systems were and how we would integrate into that or not, as the case may be. We ended up creating our own content management system from scratch because we knew that it would be big, it would be unwieldy. At one point, there were 6,000 logins to the content management system around the world because FCO, Foreign Commonwealth Office, have satellite offices around the world and they need to publish to GovUK. So... It's right. quite a big beast. Yeah. So again, they had to understand everything about it before we even created the beta. Yeah. So what was your role on that team at that stage? So I created the team. You created, you built mm, the team out. Yeah. And I guess like, you know, Yaris being here as well, it's a great opportunity to get the understanding of how content design sits um, within the service design framework, I guess. Because I know Louise Down is, is now doing great work over the GDS and I'm keen to understand how content design sits within that world or how you think it sits within that world. I'll give you a story which will give you a good example of this. So this is later. We'd already gone live, so it was maybe 2012, 2013. And uh, I had a service manager call me and say, oh, we need one of your content people because one of our services uh, needs to go live soon. And like, how soon? A couple of weeks. I was like, and what content people have you had? None was the answer. And I was like, Okay, I'll, I'll send one of the guys over. And the way that he was asking, basically, he wanted to be proofread. He wanted us to crack typos. Well, one of my lot went over, came back a couple of hours later with a funny little grin on his face. And I was like, all right, what have you done? And he said, oh, I tweaked it a bit. And as he said that, my phone went and this guy, the product owner, absolutely screaming at me. He's cut my service by 30%. He's changed all the language. He's moved the tool out and put it somewhere else. He's telling us that it won't work because the mental models aren't correct. And I was like, mm-hmm, was he right? And he was because the guy who I had sent had done all the copy, had done all the user needs for that particular benefit. That's what this was to apply for a benefit. He'd done it all. And what he realized was that the stuff in the application process itself was too late. They should have done it two months before they even get to that process. It was on the wrong channel at the wrong time using the wrong language. It was the wrong thing. So he had essentially cut thousands out of their service because it had taken them months to build. And he said, you don't need it. Somebody else is doing that over there and people get to it from social media. Why did you put that in there? That's content design in services. Uh, I think um, the uh, the example you give is very exemplary for any type of lack of design that you might encounter in, in services or products. Or, so that, it sounds so recognizable, this thing, like, you know... Um, if you speak to a product manager or a service manager in an organization and they bring in service design at the last point to to finesse it, you know, you need to go back and say, look, the proposition is completely, you know, wrong because we haven't, you have designed the service, we haven't, you've created the service, you've built the service without designing it and without asking yourself the question whether you actually need it that way, etc. And, and I think the, the analogies of you describing the, how content design became a thing and how you coined it and all that kind of things. It's quite interesting how that, it seems to almost be a, re a repeating pattern over history. So in my original discipline, which is product design, it's also, I guess, back in the 50s of the previous century, you would have people designing machines to fulfill a certain function. And um, there was no design really involved in, from a user, from an end-user perspective. And uh, that would, there must have been loads of people trying to convince factory owners, for instance, uh, to or uh, mechanical engineers that, that you know you need to think a little bit about the actual people using it, and you know you will get 
much better product. You will sell much more and you will get, you might reduce the amount of accidents that happen, et cetera, with the car that you're designing, for instance. And that pattern has repeated itself. Like as technology enters a, a certain area of, of things that people use, like, you know, when, when people started to use the internet more and it became a big thing, then suddenly, you know, from just a functional tech thing, it, it morphed into something that was so prominent in people's lives that it, it was, you know, it turned into a matter of life and death, so, you know, almost. So people needed to really think about how it's best applied and, and put designers on it and put, put the proper customer-centered or user-centered process against it. And, you know, as, as content, now there's, you know, there's an explosion of content at the moment, uh, that, that needs to be designed. Someone needs to think about that. And that's like, it's, it's an evolving craft, I imagine, stumbling over the same kind of, um, the same uh, stumbling blocks that the previous design disciplines that have evolved in that way, you know, in a, in a complex, evolving, growing, exploding amount of users uh, that, that, you know, you stumble over the same things, people not getting it or, you know, it's a, it's a whole debate probably around the semantics around what is content design. You, you've coined it, but, you know, and I think the other side of the world, there's a different word for it, you know, what would you call it, UX writing? Yeah, exactly. And people might understand, you know, what good design is in, in different ways and give it different labels around the world. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. It's, it's a repeating pattern as a a field of, of technology, of a field of, you know, that's being used by users uh, becomes uh, more of a, of a discipline. Yeah. So, I guess, like, just to follow on from what Yaros was saying, like, how do we create a culture of, of content design champions because there's going to be people listening to this and they could be from semi-mature organizations where design is there. You've got, you've got a service design discipline, you've got a UX discipline and they have to go and they have to start having a conversation, the difficult conversation with the people who are going to buy design from the community. And I've definitely seen the, the gap between interface design and people using the system and that being words. And I've seen Lara Mipson being used in user testing sessions. So what would what advice would you give to people that they could then take back to the business and say, content design is a thing, we need to start thinking about this and the dangers that occur from what Yaris was saying about putting it in too late? Yeah, there are enough case studies out there now to show, but I guess it depends on what your organisation cares about. So there's a case study that NetLife Research did on the Norwegian Cancer Care project. I'll put a link to that in the show notes, yeah. Yeah, and that shows how culling vast quantities of pages and having a user-centred approach to their content lifted all their donations and their monthly donations and their one-off donations through the roof. GovUK is also very open um, about its successes. So it saved, I think it was 46 million in the first year and then 62 million the second year or something. Stupid big numbers. Yeah, big, big money. Yeah, through using this approach. And then you've got damage limitation and that you can just pick one of your favourite massive organisations and see when they've done stuff wrong. Yeah. Like I actually did a, an interview last night on the service design show and I was speaking about the democratization of design and I see a parallel between the democratization of design and the prevalence of Microsoft Word and I see a parallel between the two of it where businesses assume that they've got the tool, that they've got also got the expertise. So what advice do you give to people who are um, currently doing it? They're shipping products, they're shipping services and they're assuming that that kind of mindset how, how do they shift the mindset is what i guess i'm trying to ask so it takes ten thousand hours to become an expert right so if you are an expert in design or i don't know product management you are probably going to love the thing that you do and you're going to mm. put ten thousand hours in that content people 
don't just have GCSE English and write. They listen to podcasts, they read books, they go to seminars, they go on training courses, they learn how to do this well. And it's a discipline that is, I don't know, maybe I'm very biased, but I feel it is very beleaguered. It is kind of like the poor cousins. They're normally the cheapest people on the team, but they're the ones that make the impact. People don't come to most websites for the design or the code. They come for the content. Who is the most likely champion of content design? It'll be like the product managers and the service designers. Okay. Because they're the ones actually with the kudos and the kind of gravitas to do that. We often find if you have a designer who's never worked with a content person, then they do. And then you ask them to go back to working without a content person. They'll go, no, because I don't know enough now. Yeah. So if you had, say, and this is for Yaris as well, if you'd full control, which Yaris does because he's the International <laughs> Service Design Director, if you'd full control of the design process from end to end, I'm keen to hear both your perspectives on where this process should sit. Where, where should content design sit if you had to co-design it together in real time? Well, if I look back at the projects that we've been doing for the last years at Seren, I think the, the more successful ones were where we had the brief, because you're saying you, you've got full control over the end-to-end process, which yeah. is, you know, there, there's often there's a brief from a client and you try and stretch it, but you don't have, you don't always have the, the remits to do the full end-to-end, as in, you know, you start with a proposition uh, with a completely open slate and you end with detailed design of, of every single channel within the service that you're designing. Of course, the, you know, these kind of projects don't happen every time. We, we get more and more of them because we're quite a, a sizable company now, which, which helps. But where we had this kind of end-to-end approach uh, and the remit and the budget and the timelines and... Um, we put together a team that had the equivalent of a, of a content designer, so, you know, semantics again, but I think uh, in our case, it would be designers with either a copyright or a visual design background, and ideally both, on the team from the very beginning, next to the service designers and the, the guys who are going to be building the service and the, the information architects, etc. Uh, then you get a much more iterative and uh, eventually more successful approach with much less having to go back to the drawing board. You, you kind of de-risk a lot of iterations that you that you would otherwise need to go through in the end, which are more, more costly when you're already, you know, developing quite advanced prototypes, etc. Yeah, we generally say if you put content people in at Discovery, what they'll be doing so while your designers might be looking for patterns and, and for interactions, the content people will be looking at that, but they'll also be looking at the vocabulary that triggers those and how they use that. And they'll also be tracking back. So nobody wakes up in the morning and thinks, I know I'm going to do a brand new thing that I've never thought about before. Take seven to nine or seven to 12 unconscious points to make a conscious decision. And so your content people will understand or should understand through the kind of research process what those trigger points are, what are the previous information that they've already been given before they hit the thing that they're looking at from you. Then you can take that language through and then you can either disrupt the journey or you can reflect those models and then get them through that. So your content people, I would say, should be from discovery all the way to the other end because also once you've made that decision and you've ended whatever it is that you're doing, there will be other things. Are they are they then your brand champions? So what kind of shared learnings can be obtained from, say, that slither of, of a project from discovery all the way through to finishing the project that you were doing? What kind of shared learnings can be taken and then reapplied from a larger ecosystem perspective? So in terms of something that can be repurposed into like a guidelines of some sort or, or a, 
not a, I don't like using the word pattern library or a component or a system, what kind of things should be taken from those learnings that can be then reapplied? What does that look like? So generally you'll have a style guide. So an editorial style, I know that designers have style guides as well. Um, a lot of big organizations are now popping them together. So GDSs, the co-op is, all of their design and content stuff is together because they hit on each other, right? I mean, it's just such a massive impact one to the other. So if you've got somebody in discovery and all the way through, then you have loads of language patterns coming out of that. So you should be able to apply that to the rest of your service and the rest of your kind of digital ecosystem. Also, if you've run the whole project off to user or job stories, then suddenly your entire team can run their content off a good bank of stories. So your press team can do that. Your social media team can do that. It's not just doing it once for the one digital service that you're looking at. Your whole organization, and it's far more efficient. You get far more cohesive content journeys and information journeys, and you save a whole load of time and money. Yeah, I mean, I think that that makes sense. Yeah, and also the, um, so having gone through your, your book, Content Design, I mean, some of the research methods described in there, they are directly applicable in the very early stages, even if you're thinking about a just a business plan, you know, for, before you even start designing a service altogether. You know, just to see what people are, are looking for, that, that's already a, a bit of market research almost. And then how are they looking for it, through which channels, and, you know, and, and they, once you get into more detail, I guess content design becomes more and more important. But that's not to say that it's not, you know, it should be forgotten in the beginning. Right? Yeah, that's it. That's it. It's, it's just, it's mumbling along in the bottom with everything else, really. So there's there's another part of the uh, the conversation that I just want to try and include. And I was thinking about this on the way over when I was coming from Dublin. And it's how SEO plays uh, with content design. Because I know there's going to be organizations out there that a team looks after the website and a team looks after the product. And the, the marketing team tends to work with the website that sits up front. So... I'm keen to understand how content design and SEO can work together. Okay, so content designers will use all the SEO tools, but to design for the human on the other side. So I'm quite vocal about these. You you have a lot of SEO agencies who say, use us and you will end up number one of Google. And you can have pages on everything, so long as it's trending, because then it will push traffic to your website. My conversation around this is you can have useless traffic you still have to maintain that page that is still costing you something and it's that page can be very successful but it's not valuable I mean how many people have clicked on clickbait right yeah and then you get to you'll never guess what happened next and then you get to the site and you look at it and then you disappear you don't even know what site you're on I know yeah what websites are you looking at <laughs> I, I don't do that <laughs> I know I know absolutely what I interviewed Jerry McGovern and I know you did a talk with him in Minneapolis I think it was recently um he mentioned to me and you know good content is more findable and it's kind of the argument of SEO versus findability um, do you have anything to add to that? That's it. You, you can find it. If your content's crap, it's crap. If you make your content really good, SEO sort of comes for free. There's a certain bunch of stuff that you can do that you can make life a bit easier. You can add schema code and all this sort of thing. That's fine. But generally, what I say to people is, especially if they have limited time and resource, focus on the content. Your SEO will just come with it and then you won't have to spend the extra on it. Okay. 
one more question in this whole kind of um, episode before we move into the final part of the, the podcast. And it's copywriting versus content designers. Um, I'm, I'm really throwing them all at you here today. <laughs> what are your thoughts on the differences in terms of mindset between copywriting and content designers? So I think the first thing to say is that a lot of copywriters do exactly what content designers do. And a lot of content designers are in fact copywriters now. So it is quite ironic that as an industry of word people, we can't actually come up with titles that work across the board. But copywriters, and I am an ex-copywriter, so I feel quite confident in saying this, but copywriters spin a story. They inspire, they tell, they sell a story. Content Mm. designers take data and evidence and usually either reflect or disrupt a mental model to get something else across. So it's a slightly different process because a lot of copywriters have to just sell a dream. So I'm hearing the word sale in there and I'm keen to understand, is that really the mindset that designing for sale versus designing for comprehension? Is that See, I think all copywriters can use all the content design techniques. It's just a bunch of techniques that have been put together to create user-centered content. Right. So you you know, you can use it. There seems to be this huge elitism which I really hate at the moment. We have different skills and we all use them for different reasons. Well, absolutely. It's the whole industry at the moment is we're we're giving ourselves labels and names. And I can't imagine how difficult it must be for people on the client side to kind of go, I'm yeah. I'm buying what? A yeah, content exactly. designer, like, is that going to sit in the marketing team? What are they? What are they? What <laughs> content are they designing? Do yeah, they use exactly. Photoshop for this? The exactly. word design is in there. Yeah, exactly. So I don't need my designer, right? Because yeah. I have a content designer. Yes, who, who you should do. we? Who should we fire? Should we get rid of the interaction <laughs> designer? What? What interactions are they designing? <laughs> exactly, exactly. All right. Well, look, we're going to come on to the the last part of the the episode, and we'll we'll ask Sarah the first question, and then we'll get Yoris's uh, feedback as well in it. It is, what is the one thing in the industry that you wish you were able to banish? Frequently asked questions. In terms of interface just design? awful. Really? Just awful. One. You and Jerry McGovern um, <laughs> sh- should write another book or something together. We agree together. on this. I think that might have been his, the same one as him. <laughs> All right, frequently asked questions. Yeah, they're badly designed. Normally people say, oh, but, you know, they're so clear and succinct. And it's like, well, why is the rest of your website not like that? Yeah, it's like quick links. Yeah. Where, where are the slow links? That's what Terry says. To yeah, me. exactly. Um, Yoris, what is the one thing from the industry you wish you were able to banish? And don't say Irish people. <laughs> uh, so I think, um, so it's a bit of an introspective uh, answer. Is like us as designers constantly having to soul search Okay, so tell us a little bit about what you mean by... So, for instance, whenever I go to a, a service design conference, uh, about 80% of the chatter is about, but what is service design? And, you know, if you get stuck at that, at that stage, you're, you're worrying too much about the semantics of what it is you're doing and too little on the outcomes and the, you know, the, the, what it is that you're doing for people and just go and do your job, you know. <laughs> That's excellent. Um, that's going to be one of my favourite ones. I can already feel that. So what is the one professional skill, Sarah, that you wish you were better at? <laughs> You're not allowed to say content design. <laughs> um, it's probably a little bit more outward patience. I think when I, when I go into a room and people say, oh, but anybody can write, it pretty much shows on my face how I feel about that. So if I could control my mm-hmm. facial muscles... I would definitely be happier. Yeah, I imagine that must be very frustrating. What about you, Yaris? So um, what is the one professional skill that you wish you were better at? Uh, I can be a bit impatient. 
especially now working for a larger, you know, being part of a very large organization as opposed to the independent design agency that we were, you need a bit more patience, a bit more political skills. Yeah. Nice political answer. Um, and a final question before we wrap this up is what advice would you give to emerging design talent for the future? One, value your content people. <laughs> Two, value your content people. Yeah. <laughs> That's a bit biased. Anything else you want to add, maybe? I think it's the same as everybody has said, but it is really important. It's okay to ask the question why. Yeah. Why is the most important question you can ask? Because often if you are emerging and you're going into an organization and you're new to it, remember everybody else has been trudged in this stuff for five years and so they, they've stopped asking that question, why? So if you go in and just go, why are we doing that like that? It can be the most important question that's asked. Absolutely, absolutely. Yaris, to wrap this one up. Um, you need to be really passionate about about what you do. So kind of jumping to where there's money, for instance, in design is not a good move because design is not going to make you rich, you know, to begin with. it's It needs to be something that you do because you really believe that this is, you know, your mission in life. And then you, you know, everything you do in your in your in your life will steer you towards that particular field of design. You might even, you know, invent a new field of design like like Sarah has done. Yeah. Yeah, we can only wish. <laughs> <laughs> so, guys, thank you so much for your time uh, today. Um, Sarah, if anyone wants to find you online, how might they do that? Contentdesign.london. Okay, I do. I found that one as well. And what about you on Twitter? Yep. And it's E-S-C-M-U-M-Eskmum. I'll put both links into the show notes. And Yaris, are you on Twitter or LinkedIn if anyone wants to get in touch with you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter as Joris Beats. So it's J-O-R-I-S-B-E-E-T-S. Difficult for a name with an at before that. And um, one of the my passion designs is actually the Delta Harp, which uh, you can also find on Twitter, which is a, a crazy musical instrument that I've designed. Absolutely, you should actually check that one out. It's really cool. It's it's a standalone electric harp, and um, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Guys, thanks so much. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you'd like to be part of the conversation or community, hop on over to thisishcd.com, where you can request to join the Slack channel and help shape future episodes and connect with other designers around the world. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.